brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a Midi clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome to the program. I'm Chris Stafford in Florida. And I'm Sarah Juggins over in the UK. And it's lovely to have you back, Sarah. You've been gone so long. Hockey, hockey, hockey was it was, was your life, wasn't it, this summer? Yeah, I've missed you guys, but I have had quite a fantastic summer, it's got to be said. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, a real indulgence for you being, being the hockey queen that you are. So this, I mean, with all your Christmases coming at once, wasn't it? Well, it was, yeah, I mean, I, I, I go out to these events as a representative of the international media, but at heart, you know, if England or Great Britain are doing well, then there's, there's, a, there's a certain joy in my voice when I'm talking about it. So, yeah, we, we've, had a, we've had a good summer. You really have. And I'm delighted that we're going to be hearing from the assistant coach of that team, Karen Brown, a little bit later on in the program. And we'll also have a, an exclusive interview with the U.S. Open wheelchair singles champion Jordan Wiley, who won her first Grand Slam singles title uh, just a couple of weeks ago in New York. And then later on in the program, continuing our series in partnership with the Female Coaching Network, we're going to hear from the British swimmer, Olympian, who is now full-time coach, Melanie Marshall. So all that to look forward to. So and we just, just give us an overview, Sarah, of, of what your summer looked like because you, you, had, you had to go to the south of Spain. That must have been tough. <laughs> uh, yeah, I set off to uh, Valencia. Um, I think that was the end of May, beginning of June. Um, and that was the first of the Hockey World League semifinals, uh, which is a bit of a misnomer because although they're semifinals, they're sort of sort of finals, um, but basically there, um, the top four finishers automatically qualified for the Olympics, so there's an awful lot hanging on those events. Uh, Great Britain won, which was marvellous, um, and then we had um, uh, Germany and Argentina both qualified through through that event, um, and then I went straight from there off to Antwerp uh, in Belgium, and uh, it, it was quite funny really because I, I left Valencia and uh, popped back home repacked put a couple of jumpers in because i assumed that belgium would be a little bit uh, a little bit colder than than valencia in spain and uh, I, I arrived for Ant 
sort of landed in the middle of Antwerp's hottest summer ever in history. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the jumpers didn't ever come out of the bag. And uh, there, Great Britain men qualified for the Olympics um, alongside the Netherlands, Australia, um, and Germany again. And um, yeah, it was it, it was just it was a couple of really really good events. Um, and then of course I came back to um, came back to England, and it was the Euro Hockey Championships which is um, the top eight teams in Europe competing. And uh, lo and behold, England women went on and won that as well. And that was, I mean, that was just the most fantastic of finals because it was played in the Olympic Park, uh, the, the, the new English home of hockey. The final really couldn't have been better scripted. It was the Netherlands, so the world's number one side, up against England, who are the world's number six side, but the home nation. Um, ten minutes from the end, the Netherlands were winning 2-0 and in, it was that sort of old, old situation of people beginning to leave the stadium and suddenly England got a goal back, uh, then they got a second goal back, then the match ended, then it went to penalty shootout and Maddie Hinch, who's the England goalkeeper, performed some absolute heroics and, uh, and sealed the victory. So it was a uh, yeah, pretty, pretty amazing tournament all round really. Good sport, yes. Do you, mm. get, do you get a chance to play any hockey yourself these days? Oh yeah, I play um, masters hockey. So I uh, I play for Cambridge City. Um, last year we were, well, I think I said several shows ago, but thank you, thank you for giving me the chance to air this. Uh, we're, we're the um, national runners-up, so we're the second best masters team in the UK. So I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping this year we'll go one better and uh, uh, you know win the title. Excellent. And your position? Uh, I'm centre midfield. Oh, you are, right? We do yeah. have something in common, you see. Yeah, back in the day. Well, mine, <laughs> mine was a few years ago. Mine is not current, but uh, all good fun. It's, it's a great game. It is. It's a great game, yeah. <laughs> it is. All right, well, another um, stick and ball game <laughs> tops our news this week because it was surrounded by a bit of controversy, the, the Solheim Cup between the USA and Europe. You were able to watch this on the – it have it had TV coverage, didn't it, uh, in Europe? Oh golly, yes. I mean, I mean, it was it was wall to wall coverage of the golf. Really, I uh, uh, I sat and watched. Um, well, certainly the last day and, and most of the preceding days as well. And it was it was absolutely brilliant to watch. I mean, the, the European team looked like they were just heading for for another victory. Uh, that would have been their third in a row. Um, and then there was this this incident that happened, which I I, I don't know how well publicised it was over in the over in the states. But oh, I mean, it was yes. I mean, worldwide, it certainly. Yeah, yeah. It didn't escape the sports pages and uh, certainly the golf magazines and publications. Well, basically what happened for anybody who didn't see the event is Alison Lee, one of the USA uh, players, puttered and just fell short, um, possibly two feet, uh, although that's that's part of the controversy. Um, she assumed that she'd been given the shot by um, her opponents, Charlie Hull and Suzanne Pettersson. Both of those players had actually walked away from the hole at the time. So Lee bent down, picked up a ball and was absolutely astonished when the umpire ruled it a European hole uh, because she thought she'd halved it. Mm. Um, th there was lots and lots of talk. Um, the, the players, uh, Alison Lee was devastated. She was in tears. Charlie Hull uh, the European player was actually in tears as well because she felt that uh, it, it was the wrong decision. Um, Suzanne Pettersson was adamant that the rules had been broken and so the ruling was correct. Um, and, uh, I, I think the, the, the turning point for the whole match was when the US team got together, um, the, the, a microphone managed to get in amongst them and hear what was being said and basically they used that decision 
and they used what they referred to as the Europeans' bad sportsmanship to motivate themselves, and they they turned the event around. And uh, one of the best, I, I took quite a neutral view on it really, but uh, one of the best things for me was seeing Angela Stanford, one of the uh, one of the US players, um, actually win her first Solheim Cup match for, and I think it was in nine matches. But she but she chose that moment to uh, to win, and she was one of the people who were the heroines of the day. But I mean, I, I don't know what you think about it, Chris, but I, my my emotions swung actually because in the first instance I was um, absolutely outraged that the Europeans had uh, had called the foul and then I put myself into Suzanne Peterson's shoes and I thought well actually in the heat of a sporting moment when you see somebody do something that transgresses the rules mm. particularly in a, in a sport like golf you do go oi oi what are you doing um, so I, I, I it, for, for me it was a, it was an odd one because I felt that Peterson was actually penalised or it was certainly discussed in, in quite unsavoury terms possibly a little unfairly well, I know that Suzanne Pedersen has come out on social media full of remorse for, mm. for the controversy. So, you know, it, it's been, an, an, I think, a very unfortunate scar on the landscape, not only of that tournament, but for women's golf as well and for sport. I mean, you just don't want to see those incidences. But, you know, it does remind us that we're all human and those kind of human errors will creep in. And sadly, you know, it, it produce the outcome that it did and and the atmosphere you know because it mm. detracts from the sporting atmosphere well what would you have done chris <laughs> were, were you were you suzanne peterson and you were in the most important match of your life or you know you basically the solheim cup could rest on this decision what would you have done well that i don't think you should put me on the spot on the <laughs> air you know <laughs> <laughs> i'm going to answer in a it's minute. like <laughs> well you know it is it, it reminds me you know of the athens olympics when in show jumping uh the the actually the the, the person who, who won the silver medal missed the timing and she 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 went through the timer ahead of a time so the so it was just so instead of doing what we would consider a pony club a pony club move you know something very very basic she continued and she therefore was eliminated and the gold medal went to someone else it was just one of those what we call a pony club mistake it's so fundamental to the sport that she should have known better so I think it's one of these situations where she should have known better but you know something happens as they say we on radio something I'm, I'm, happens. I'm loving your diplomacy there <laughs> <laughs> As I say, I, I thought long and hard about it, and I think my initial reaction probably would have been with Pettersson's reaction, and then I might have probably 10 minutes later turned around and said, oh, do you know what, have the shot. But I think by that stage it was just all too late, wasn't it? It was all too late, see. It's, it's the moment, mm. isn't it? You know, yeah. reading Pettersson's remarks afterwards, you know, I kind of sympathised with her because she truly was totally remorseful about it yeah. all. Yeah, and she was in the moment. She was in the moment. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, anyway, we. I, the, sorry for being on the spot like that, Chris. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I'll wiggle out whenever I can. You know that. <laughs> I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure it was, discuss, it was that discussion was being had up and down both of our countries. Actually, I, I, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was. Yeah, for, by people that know a lot more about the rules of the game yeah. than I do. Yeah, for sure. Well, we, <clears throat> of course, they've all moved on, haven't they? Um, after the yeah, Solomon yeah. 
they're all off, well, all of them, several of them now after the Lacoste Open um, in France. Uh, the defending champion, Azara Munoz, is amongst those. Um, it's a 78-strong field. And, and what I think is um, interesting about, uh, about the whole golf scene is the fact that these players can come together and have such a strong unit as Europeans or as um, Americans for the Solheim Cup. And then the next week, they're back doing battle with each other again. And, you know, Pedersen's going to find herself up against Charlie Hull in the forthcoming, you know, the, the, whole, the whole team. Team, having come together has now got to relearn the uh, the, the competitiveness of it all but yeah, uh, yeah there's 78 golfers and they're all taking part in in um in france uh this this week so uh, that, that's one if you if you can get that on on uh, on tv that's a good one to watch yeah for sure hopefully harmony will re- be resumed amongst the lady golfers oh let's hope so <laughs> you're right you're crackling a bit sarah just to let you know in case uh, our audience are wondering what you're doing yeah, apologies. Uh, yes, because yes. well, you have been known to be doing all kinds of things whilst you're talking. <laughs> you remember one other occasion? I thought, what is she doing? I think Joe was on the show with us that time. We never knew what you were up to, but uh, anyway, uh, it's it, it really is fun to have you back because you've picked up on lots of really really good news um, that's happening over there in the UK or in Europe uh, or Europe, England centric, shall we say? Um, and the one thing that uh, England has got to celebrate and shout about, of course, is that. Uh, football isn't it or soccer we're going to call it soccer because we have to soccer yes we've got some we've got some football going on as usual um in fact in england i have to say it very rarely seems to go away but uh, it's, it's been good england and scotland um and wales actually were all taking part in european qualifiers uh england and scotland got off to great winning ways um england beat estonia eight nil um Scotland beat Slovenia uh, just by the 1-0, but it was um, a particularly magical night for Danielle Carter of England. Uh, it was her first appearance for her national side, and she scored a hat-trick, so she was absolutely delighted. Uh, Wales, they were unable to make it three wins for the home nations. They lost 3-0 to Austria, but, um, you know, two out of three ain't bad. So, uh, yeah. yeah, I feel for Wales, you know, my, my heart's still in Wales. I love it. I, you know, I, I always uh, root for the rugby and... It's yeah, you know, it's a shame they had such a, a slamming there. But I understand that England had a lot of new players on the bench this time. They they brought out uh, not only some that were part of the World Cup uh, series, of course, but also some new blood. And I, I suppose these are the games that that's the opportunity to blood new players, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And I mean, I, the other thing is. I, th- I think the the thing that England, England football team, and, and actually all the home nations are doing quite nicely, is they're really picking up on the pool of talent. Um, I, I know later on when you when you're chatting to Karen Brown, she'll talk about the fact that um, the girls these days have so much opportunity to play a number of sports, and football is one of the sports that's really growing in this country. Uh, we're still obviously miles behind you guys over in the states in terms of the prestige of women's football, but with the World Cup recently, um, with the fact that a lo- load of these players are now becoming household names, they're they're, they're there's, there's now a role model structure in place. So young girls want to play football and young girls are, are getting picked up and taken through the talent camps. And what we're seeing at the, far, at the, at the top end of that is we've, we've got a, a steady flow of players coming through and they're talented players. So, uh, yeah, you, you know, if, if, you can, if you can get a great, if you can get a great um, base of talent and, and, and use them and blood them in these, in these uh, internationals, then uh, the, the game's fair set to, to grow and prosper. It is. It's all about uh, continuity, isn't it? And sustaining mm. that level of uh, international 
state your status really because once you get to the top there you 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 don't want to be it's easy to come down isn't it it's holding on exactly that's the challenge in any sport um but you know talk about one of my favorite sports now my my newfound (laughs) sport (laughs) and people are going to be wondering well why does she keep on about sailing well you know there's some wonderful wonderful sportswomen in sailing and they don't get the the, the coverage that they deserve that so often happens to the minorities of sports and someone who was um, on the show we did a sailing special just last month actually with joe pickard and uh, she spoke to sarah ayton well you have an update on what sarah's been up to don't you yeah sarah ayton um again for those people who don't know uh she won or she was part of the sailing crew that won gold medals in both the 2004 and 2008 olympics um and when she was asked who she was by a by a TV journalist? She replied, "Oh, you'll know me as one of the three blondes in a boat," which I think just shows the uh, you're quite right that, that sailing just doesn't get enough coverage. Well, now she's one of just two female sailors who are taking part in the extreme sailing series, and uh, her boat, the Muscat Wave, is leading. Um, they're six races into a, into a um, eight series um, match, I suppose, or competition, um, and the Muscat Wave is ahead. Uh, the final two races are coming up. There's um, one taking place in Est- Istanbul in Turkey next week. And then the series finale will be in Sydney, Australia uh, from the 10th to the 13th of December. The the great thing about this, Sarah Aiton has actually been off the um, Olympic squad, or she, she certainly didn't go to the Olympics in 2012 uh, because she was raising a young family at the time. But she says that this race has really rekindled her sailing ambitions. And while she's not going to be ready for Rio next year, she certainly doesn't rule out a return to Olympic competition. And, and just reading some of the interviews with Sarah, um, I, I think she's she's a great example of a woman who's who's just happy to do her thing in a sport that's very, very largely male dominated. She says she doesn't see herself as the only female in the boat. She sees herself as one of the crew. Um, and I think that's the, you know, that, that's the attitude to take. Get on there, do your best and show just why you're an Olympic champion. Absolutely. I agree. And and you know, while you call it extreme sailing, I would have to say all of these ocean sailors are—it's all about extreme sailing. I mean, you know, I don't know why this is called extreme sailing series because ever you ever you go out, you know, really ocean sailing, it looks pretty extreme to me, Sarah. Do you know, step in a boat, and I'd call it extreme, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> um, well. I, I, you know, I haven't spoken to you for a while, Chris. We've been off the show for a bit. How, how is your sailing career coming along? Have you? Uh, My sailing uh, career is progressing slowly. I'm doing a lot of the the the, the theory, the uh, the um, R and D, which is yeah. essential, mm-hmm. um, and and talking to a few people that really know a little bit about it, like Dee Cafari and and Sarah Hasdreiter, they're giving me really good tips. So when are you going the, to put them into practical action? Really well, and yes, it, well that would be extreme. <laughs> Uh, no seriously actually it's on my bucket list I do want to learn to sail it's just getting it on the schedule so you know stay tuned watch this space as they say because I am determined to learn to sail in this lifetime you Um, will put it on a YouTube won't you of course of course the fact that um, (laughs) I've put the life jacket on and I have stepped on that boat um, but there is a lot of theory to do I, I want to go prepared don't I Mm, absolutely yeah preparation is everything it certainly is all right well if you want to hear that full interview with sarah ayton talking about the extreme sailing and lots more then you'll find the link on our website and of course on itunes uh, just look for that sailing special with joe Picard. well we're going to t- talk to an uh, a real another new hero in the sport well i say she's a new hero she's been a doubles wheelchair tennis 
uh, champion now in Grand Slam champion before, but this year at the US Open, Sarah, she won her first singles Grand Slam against her doubles partner as well, which made it even more special. And uh, she had the chance to talk to me before. She was flitting off. She just got back from the US and now she's flitting off somewhere else. She's a very, very busy girl. But I happened to uh, manage to catch up with her uh, just a few days ago in between those trips. And I know we've got lots of other tennis news coming up after we hear from Jordan, but uh, I wanted to share this with you because she really has done something that's been career changing for her in the moment. Jordan, welcome to the program. Thank you. Well, huge congratulations on winning that first singles Grand Slam for you. Has it all sunk in yet? Uh, yeah, I think it has now. I mean, <clears throat> well, when it actually happened and, and when I'd won, I didn't really get time to celebrate or let it sink in because of the rain delay. My match was delayed by a, about five or six hours. So mm. um, I literally came straight off the court and straight onto an aeroplane to come back home. Yeah, but going into this tournament, obviously you've got a terrific record in in doubles, but then to go and beat your doubles partner, you Kamiji, and that must have been special too. Was it was it a bit like the Italian girls in the in the other open singles, you know, the two Italians playing each other, you know, you've got the friendship and yet the rivalry. Yeah, a bit like that. Yeah, I mean me and Yuri obviously not from the same country, but we are best of friends. Um, so in one way, it was a relief that I was playing her um, because I know her weaknesses and strengths and I know it's going to be a good, clean game because we both respect each other. Um, and I would have been happy for her if the result had gone the other way as well. Um, but at the same time, yeah, you know, it, it is difficult to play your best friend, but I guess it's just business and we both understand that. Yeah, just got right down to it. But she did come back and bite you in the second set, didn't she? <laughs> yeah, I actually only won seven points in that second set, losing it six love. So I don't actually know what happened there. I mean, Yui did step it up and play well, and I don't know, maybe the nerves got better of me. Is, is that what you think it was? Because obviously getting off to a good start by, by winning that first set, you know, makes a difference to any game, doesn't it? Yeah, and um, normally I don't win the first set. <laughs> so um, that was that was a shock for me. I actually played really well and won the first set, and I think I just scared myself a you little just... bit into thinking, <laughs> you know, oh, I'm just one set away from winning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's that realisation of, you know, where you are and, you know, and channeling those butterflies, keeping them flying in formation. So how did you do that in the third set then, Jordan? Uh, well, I went for a toilet break um, and it just so happened that the toilet was so far away. So it actually gave me a chance just to think about things and calm down and um, just kind of give myself a stern talking to, really. Oh, did you? What did you say to yourself? Um, just that it, it's a one-set shootout and... I wasn't prepared to to let it slip from my fingers because I know how upset I would have been if that would have happened. Well, you came back with extra determination then, didn't you? To 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 you know go that that last set six one pretty convincingly there. You you weren't gonna say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit 
credit card rewards? Tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You not let her get hold of this, were you? Because clearly if she had, thought she'd got the upper hand, you, you really would have been going all the way, wouldn't you? Probably to a tiebreaker. Yeah. Yeah, the um the thing is with Yui is that she's a real fighter and me playing with her um in the doubles, um, I know that. And that's the scary thing about Yui is that she always comes back harder and she will always fight until the end and I think I had nine match points in the end and um I, she just wouldn't let me take them and she kept hitting winners and she kept going for big shots and really, really pushing me. Um, when I was I was five love forty love up, and um, she just wouldn't let me take it. But you know, eventually I did take it on the ninth one. But I knew that she would be coming at me hard. So when you look back at that tournament, obviously there's nothing like a Grand Slam and winning a Grand Slam to really underline your your your, cons- your consistency and your you know your form for this year. What do you most take away from it, Jordan? Um, probably just confidence. Like before I went into the tournament, you know, I, I was feeling confident, but I'd never even got to a final before and I'd only got to a semi-final once before in my whole career. So, um, to actually come back at home and with that title is a real confidence boost. And, um, for me, confidence is something I've struggled with for a long time. So I'm hoping that this can like push me on. Um, especially for, for next year, going into next year in the Paralympic Games. Let's talk about the difference between playing doubles and singles and what it's meant to you because you are a Grand Slam winner, obviously, in the doubles. You've got a terrific record there and earlier this year, of course, and you're the British champion. You've, you've, you've already had a fantastic year. What is the difference to you in terms of your career development, Jordan, for the singles game versus the doubles game where you have such a fantastic track record? Um, it literally just is confidence. But um, when I'm playing with Yui, I feel a lot more confident that she's there, and I know that it's a partnership, and she's going to make errors, and I'm going to make errors. But you know, she's also going to make winners, so it's not all just falling down to me. And you know, when things aren't going my way, um, she's there to pick me up. Whereas in singles, it's just everything's on me. Uh, and that's something I really struggled with um, just mentally, really. Um, but I feel like in the last like month or two, I've really been working on that uh, and my mind and just trying to get myself in a better place, really. So what has meant the most to you so far this year of all your achievements, both on the doubles court and the singles? Um, definitely this US Open win. Um, it trumps everything I've ever done in my career. <laughs> <laughs> this is it, is it? That's yeah. That's the favourite trophy right now. Yeah, definitely. And where do you put all your trophies? Are you getting a big, big, big enough cabinet for all of these? You keep collecting them. Yeah, so the smaller ones actually just go upstairs. Um, they're kind of taking over a room. 
um but my my calendar grand slam ones are actually in like a special cabinet um that my boyfriend had made for me at christmas which is really lovely but now i think i need an extension (laughs) yeah yeah it's fortunate that he can make it for you so you can add on to it yeah exactly (laughs) customize it (laughs) well the way things are going there's a lot more to come as you say i mean the main focus obviously is rio next year that's going to be your big goal but let's talk about the rest of this year georgian and what you're aiming towards there's the italian uh, um, tournament that you're heading to uh, as we speak yeah um so i've got some smaller tournaments like you said um i'm heading to now and um and then the big one really is uh, we've got doubles and singles masters uh, right at the end of the year. Um, so doubles masters, I'm defending champion twice in a row with UE. And um, for the singles masters last year, I came third. So I'll be aiming to to win both of those. Really. Yeah. So in in terms of you know staying fit and keeping the training up, then do you have a time when you can? finally rest a little bit a little bit of an off season when does that come um it doesn't really we're just on all the time Uh, I get a bit of time off for Christmas but I still need to be in training because in the first week of January I fly to Australia in preparation for the Australian Open um so there's not really any time that I can take a a break or a holiday or, or I'm constantly training or in competition I'm curious, obviously, your your training program is critically important for any athlete and to maintain that level of fitness even out of competition as well. So you don't allow yourself then to to relax. You're always doing something just to keep the body switched on, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, I do do relax. Like at weekends, weekends I get off from training. Um, So I just like to be at home and do kind of normal stuff (laughs) um but yeah during the week it's it's quite full on I'm training from um, 10 till 4 Monday to Friday um, which would include gym and also on court um hitting as well okay break that down for us because I was going to ask what that training regime looks like Jordan how how do you split up that time and what do you do in the gym because obviously your upper body strength is fantastic I wouldn't mind your upper arm strength (laughs) yeah I mean a lot of people are different um and obviously it depends on your disability to what you can do but you know I've got quite a a low disability so um, I would do a lot of weights um, a lot of shoulder maintenance because being in a wheelchair and pushing for hours on end and serving etc it um, takes a lot into your shoulders um, so we have to really maintain health um, in them and and then on court we would do two hours in the morning and and two hours in the afternoon we would break for lunch for like one hour mm-hmm. now what about your coach let's talk about your coach and how long you've been with them and it, that that's always a, obviously a vitally important partnership so uh, tell us about it um yeah well I've been with I've got kind of two coaches I've got my national coaches which are part of my governing body the tennis foundation um which I've been with for a very long time um since I was talent spotted actually when I was about 12 years old um but I do have an individual coach who's quite new I started working with him in November of last year um so things are still pretty new I mean he's come to two or three tournaments with me already um but you know there's big improvements in my game and I've I've really enjoyed the time that we've had working with each other so it's quite exciting leading up to Rio with him how often does the coach work with you then during the week before competitions 
Uh, every day. Um, normally I do Mondays and Fridays with my individual coach. And then I would do Tuesday, Wednesdays and Thursdays with my national coaches. Um, it just means that when I, obviously when I'm individual, it, it's me by myself and I'm working on specific things. Um, whereas with, when I'm with my national coaches, you know, they bring in other players from the squad so I can do match play or I can drill with them as well. So it just adds a bit of variety. Now, when you're working with your coach at home then, Jordan, um, presumably they, they're the other side of the net to you, are they? I mean, so, you know, you're going to up your game because you're playing against an able-bodied person. Is that how you coach, how you train? Uh, yes and no. Like, um, when we're training for matches, then yes, then because we would play against them. Um, so, obviously, they would get more balls back and hit the ball harder than uh, a person in a wheelchair w- would, but it's good for us because that means that... You know, I have to try and get to every ball and um, the points over a lot longer than it would have, would have been if I'm playing with someone in a wheelchair. Um, but, you know, at the same time, we could be just working on, on something really specific. So if I feel like I really want to work on my forehand, we would just drill the forehand and it wouldn't necessarily be difficult. So what have you been, you know, taking away from the recent tournaments that you've had to work on more at home then and you know particularly going into this next tournament what has been your focus at home um i think it's just been a bit smarter um i've always had power and um, a natural ability to play tennis you know from a very young age um but i've never really been tennis smart um it just means that i was a bit like i'm on autopilot and i just go out and kind of hit the ball and don't really think about anything um, whereas now I think I'm thinking about patterns of play, about tactics, about my opponent's weaknesses and strengths. And um, since I have been doing that, it's when I've been winning in the singles as well as the doubles. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's putting all those pieces together to, for the complete game. Yeah, and, and tennis is such a mental game as well. Mm, for sure, for sure. Well, let's talk about next year. Obviously, you mentioned the Australian Open. That would be nice to go back there and not just to you know, pick up the doubles uh, title but also now that you've had a taste of the singles grand slams you probably want to add to your collection next year as well as the the rio games but let's talk about the rest of the year leading up to rio what that looks like and at what point will you know that you're selected for rio jordan uh well i'm doing pretty much the same tournaments that i would be doing this year um but the qualification for rio cuts off in may um so that's when everyone is formally told who's qualified and who hasn't um, but in the women's, the top 24 in the world get direct entry. So as long as you're within that, um, you're in. Um, so that's my, my main goal, obviously, is to is have no injuries and, and stay within uh, the top four. But also the top eight in the world would be seeded at games, which is very, very important. Because obviously, if you're seeded, um, it, it, you're more likely to go further in the competition so I need to win the Grand Slams and get higher ranked for me to be in a better position when I go into the games. You're currently number one in in Great Britain aren't you? Yeah I'm number one in Great Britain and uh, number four in the world for singles. And and number four in the singles in the world? Yeah. Okay but number one in in the world in doubles as well still? Yeah yeah. Yeah you keep adding to these titles I can't imagine that you're going to lose that top spot anytime soon it's a fantastic record what's on your bucket list then when you look way down the road now that you've got a taste of uh, all these grand slams and olympics 
Yeah, I mean, for me, uh, I had three things that I really wanted to do in my career, which was to win a singles Grand Slam, to be singles world number one, and to have a singles gold medal. Um, so I've ticked off one recently, um, but you know, there's two more that are really, really important to me, and especially to get that gold medal in in Rio would be just the cherry on the top, really. That'd be one. What would be number three? Sorry. What would be number three? I'm I'm thinking of three of you know your top picks here for you know your bucket oh, yeah. list. I want, oh, sorry. Yeah, I would like to be um, world number one in the singles. Okay. All right. That's all. Just no, no, world number one and uh, another a gold medal, a gold medal in Rio. Um, yeah, nothing, nothing special. Just uh... no, 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 no. Just uh, very, very moderate expectations and ambitions. <laughs> well, clearly you're heading in the right direction. Lots more to look forward to. So, congratulations again on that first Thank Grand you. Slam win at the U.S. Open, and the very best of luck with the uh, next year to come. It's going to be a fantastic year. Another highlight, I'm sure, in 2016. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the program, Jordan. Thanks for having me. Wonderful milestone for her, Sarah. Mm, absolutely fantastic. Yeah, yeah, hats off. Hats off to her indeed. Well, of course, at the um, this year's Open, we missed Maria Sharapova, didn't we? We did. But luckily for all of us, she's making a return to competition. Uh, she's actually taking part in the Wuhan Open in China this weekend. Um, and anyone who's been following her career will know that she's been out of action since she picked up an injury at Wimbledon last June. Uh, she's been given a wild card for this event. Um, and I think we will now see the uh, the return of the Shara or the return of the Pover. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually, I've got to say, it's, it's, a, it's a really busy time for tennis anyway. Uh, there are several other WTA events going on. We've got... Um, an event in Seoul and Korea, um, the Gangzhou Open in China, and Tokyo um, in Japan as well. Uh, they're all in full swing. And again, anybody who's, who wants to have a look at some, some great quality tennis, then, uh, then tune into any of, any of those events. Um, in Seoul, Sloane Stephens and Irina Camila Begu as the number one and number two seed are making their way steadily through the field. Uh, they seem on course for showdown. While in China, Simone Halep looks to be in absolutely indomitable form at the moment. Um, and then again, flip over to Tokyo and Caroline Wozniacki and Anna Ivanovic. Both, they, they both received buys to the second round. But, um, but I think they're going to find some tough opponents in the form of Gabrine Mergaruza and um, Agineska Radowanska. I've been practicing that name for ages. You're doing really well. I love it when you come on the show and you just sail through all these difficult pronunciations. Yeah, trying. Anyway, what I was going to say at the end of all that is all of these names, there's new names on the the tennis circuit and I think we're beginning to see a time where I think women's tennis is entering a period of real exciting competition with a a lot of... um, you know, top players really, really looking to, to, to make their mark on the game. My question to you, Chris, is a simple one. Is there anyone... Putting in me on the spot again. Again. Is there anybody within the new cohort of tennis players who you think could perhaps challenge Serena or indeed is Serena reaching the end of her career? Well, that's a very, very big question is she's reaching the end of her career. Um, she's such a supreme athlete that you know when you get as fit as that I think you can go a little bit longer than those who don't have that level of fitness and athleticism and of course the experience plays a huge part now I, I know that she'll, she she would be very reluctant to you know let the reins drop as we say in horse sports mm. you know not because she's not going to go on a loose rein anytime soon um, and I that's my feeling anyway but I, I agree with you there's a lovely lovely pool of players coming up 
behind her. One of my favorites is Jeannie Bouchard. She's had her mm-hmm. ups and downs, but I'm still a fan of Jeannie. And I like her all-round game. And um, the other Chris, the Chris Everett, I think her name is. The other Chris. <laughs> she, she agrees with me. Thank you, Chris. She agrees with me. She likes Jeannie too. There you go. You've heard it from the two Chrises. <laughs> <laughs> So good luck to Jeannie. I think she'll be one of them. But as you say, there are a ton of others. In you know, I was watching Caroline Wozniacki in Tokyo this week, and you know, just her ability to get around the court. Somebody thought they'd uh, they'd um, present her with a drop shot, and she just came back with a you know really sweet angle. I mean, she's very athletic. She you know she's a bit of a terrier. She'll she'll fight you know and run down those balls. Like a yeah. terrier would run after a tennis ball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I've, got, I've got to say, just just finishing on that point, I, I just think as well, if you look at that that next tier, if you like, of tennis players, they're just now obviously working on their fitness as well so much, and it, that that's what allows that that's what allows players like Wozniacki to reach the balls that in the past would have flown past them. And I, I think mm. it's a the, the game now is becoming a great advert for women's sport, definitely. It is in that all round athleticism mm. and 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 the, and the and the strength as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that that they really are becoming complete complete athletes, and I think you know, of course, the one person who really you know began that she was really the start of changing that trend was Martina, of course. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I read her. Um, I can't remember the title of it, but her, her biography. And she was basically there was one one chapter dedicated to explaining her fitness regime. Now, this was written when she was in her late forties, and she was still training. <sighs> To well, an incredible level. Ten, ten times four hundred meter sprints with just a very short rest in between each one. That's a hard session. Oh, that, that's you know that's two more than mine, Sarah. <laughs> well, I thought it was approaching my level. <laughs> well, yes, and I know they got they got a way to go to keep up with us, haven't they? Mm. Uh, speaking yeah. of which, what happened to your two minute plank? Oh, that's reached five now. Oh, okay. But the video, we didn't see uh, the video. Ah, sorry. Yes. Thing is, when you're doing a plank. It's very, very difficult to actually uh, video yourself as well. Well, I, I set it up. I managed. I set it up. And uh, it, <laughs> yeah. it is possible. You... So don't make excuses, Miss Juggins. Come on. Um, the challenge is out there. And, you know, I know you can, if you can do five, we will applaud you. But we need to see it. Okay. All right. Good deal. Okay, let's move on to a sport that you're very comfortable with, as you mentioned, all of the hockey that went on this summer where we were able to catch up with Karen Brown, the assistant coach of that victorious team. And uh, she uh, was going to share with us, you know, what uh, that all meant to them and uh, where next for the British team. Karen Brown, welcome to the programme. Thank you very much. Well, I'm going to leave Sarah to to talk about all the action that took place this uh, summer which really was a fantastic summer for you guys over there um, but but give us a little bit of background Karen um, in, into your coaching career and how you get in, got into the role of assistant coach there at GBR Hockey. Um, well I've worked for England Hockey now for the past 10 years um, prior to that I coached a club side and worked with sort of the, the national age group sides um, but from the sort of end of 2005 I started working with Danny Kerry in the senior squad um, and been doing the same role, as I say, for the last 10 years. Do we have lots of women coaching hockey? Um, not as many as, as we probably would like, but um, in the international game there are a scattering of us around. Uh, probably the top sort of 12 sides in the world, there are probably two or three female coaches that work in that role. Um, 
I know that uh, certainly England hockey and certainly the FIH, who are the sort of governing body of our sport, are doing more to try and uh, address the imbalance at the moment. But that's that's the same as all industries sort of across the world, really. Certainly it is in sport, and we'd love to see more women coming into the, the whatever the sport may be. But uh, that's another topic. We want to focus <laughs> on the successes you've had and what uh, next for British hockey. Uh, Sarah, you, I think, followed every ball-by-ball ball play, didn't you, this summer? I absolutely did, yeah. I had a, a fairly wonderful summer watching, um, well, it was it was Great Britain and England, because just to make it clear to, to the listeners, um, Karen is assistant coach to both the Great Britain side when uh, Wales and Scotland and, and Northern Ireland get in on the act and also assistant coach to the England team. Um, so uh, out in Valencia for Hockey World League 3, um, Great Britain won that and then they went on to have this tremendous success uh, in London at the Euro. So, Karen, just tell us a little bit about how delighted everybody was after after this summer. Oh, yes. It, I mean, it, it couldn't have gone better for us. So the players, the staff, the whole organisation um, was delighted with the summer. So, you know, England Hockey and, and, and the board were quite a small organisation and we hosted the Europeans. It was the legacy event um, following London 2012. And I don't think it could have gone any better, you know, in us, the, the, the last game of the whole tournament, us winning the tournament. The men also did very well. Um, they just missed out on winning a medal. They, they lost the bronze medal match, but again, they did very well. Um, and it was shown live on the BBC. So I think as an organisation, everyone sort of had very much a, a sort of a huge shot in the arm and a boost because it couldn't have gone any better for us. Yeah, I mean, it was a brilliant day there in London. But if we just head back um, a couple of months before that to Valencia, um, and this is when the team actually achieved... With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Olympic qualification for Rio 2016. Um, which of those two events, the, the achieving the qualification or winning on, on home soil, did, what, which meant the most to the team or were they both sort of equal value? Yeah, it's really hard to put value on them like that. I think, I think as a sports person, you, you take every event and you take it on its own. It's a standalone event. So for us, um, the, the tournament in Valencia was very much focused on getting the qualification. Um, and once that had been achieved, then we focused on, right, we want to win this tournament. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't say we were fortunate because we worked very hard to achieve that. And, uh, it, it was attainable and we did very well to win that. Um, the Europeans, I think, was slightly different because 
Um, it was a home event. Um, it, there were there were very very large crowds. The, the the atmosphere was very good, and I think there for us it was a little bit about we have to sell our sport and put on a bit of a show. So we were delighted at how well the girls played and embraced the whole experience. Um, winning it was was definitely a bonus. I think as a as a staff and athletes, you know, we didn't actually say this, but I think we'd have been very disappointed if we hadn't have made the final. And I think that's what England Hockey as an organisation were anticipating when they put the women's final on on the Sunday, um, the last event. I think, you know, everything clicked for us on the day and uh, we were able to come away with the success. But I do think it was, you know, our success this summer has been very much deserved. I think all the athletes and the staff have worked incredibly hard over the last sort of 18 months, two years to get ourselves in this position. Um, so uh, I don't think it was a fluke. I don't think it was unexpected. Um, I think I think we, you get your, your rewards in sport for what you put in. I think most of the audience in that ground with 10 minutes left to play were probably surprised that England came away with a gold medal. And just again, <laughs> from the audience's point of view, England were 2-0 down at that point. <laughs> yeah, well, they, they may well have been, but the game lasts 60 <laughs> minutes. So, uh, yeah, with 10 minutes to go. But the, the girls, I thought, if you, if you, you know, obviously we've watched the game back a number of times and there's no doubt, you know, we were under the cosh and, and they were on top. But you, you have to remember we were playing the number one side in the world you know the the Olympic champions, the world champions, aside that 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 regularly finish on the top of the podium at most major tournaments that they play in, and it, it was never ever going to be easy. But the girls had incredible belief in themselves. As a coaching staff, we knew that you know if we could get on the score sheet, then then maybe that would put some doubt in their mind. And there's no doubt the sort of home crowd played a part in it. But it's interesting. Sometimes you just get momentum in sport, and when the first goal went in. Um, certainly the sort of buzz around the bench and, and around the group of players was, come on, we've got this. And I think that, that, that definitely came from uh, the crowd as well. And then once we'd got one, I think it was inevitable we were going to get the second. And, uh, and then it was just a case of, you know, not inevitable because we still had an awful lot to do to win the gold medal. But it, it, it was almost destined, I think, in that last 10 minutes in a weird sort of way. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if anybody was writing a script, that is the script that probably they would have they would have thought was pretty genius. Um, oh, well, and, and no, if, if I'd been writing the script, we'd have won it three or four <laughs> nil quite comfortably. <laughs> yeah, but the, 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 the thrill factor, I mean, it was just incredible. Just, just moving on from that, I mean, um, you know, you look back, what, is it 18 months now to the World Cup when the team was obviously not doing so well. What's, what's clicked for this team in the, in the interim months? Oh, I don't think you can ever put it down to one thing. Um, I think there was a combination. I think, I think, as a sort of um, coaching staff, we looked very hard at the culture. We looked very hard at our work ethic. Um, the athletes, you know, as like anything, they had to look long and hard at themselves and at what we do and why we do it and how we do it. And uh, Danny Kerry came back to lead the side and we made some changes. We put the athletes uh, uh, sort of central to how we run our team. They, they're involved in our decision-making process. Um, and with the combination of the staff and the athletes, we drive the program on. But the bottom line is it's, it's a lot of hard work. Mm. Um, and a combination of a lot of people, athletes, staff, working all very hard, integrated into all with the same aim. Um, and when every, everything like that is pulling in the same direction and the culture is very good, you can achieve an awful lot. 
That's brilliant. Well, what's your actual, I mean, as assistant coach, what do you actually do within the team? What's your role within the team? Um, well, normally in a, sort of the training environment, our nine to five job, I, I, I'm one of the assistant coaches with Craig Keegan. Um, primarily, he looks after more of the attack work. I look after more of the defensive work and Danny Kerry pulls it all together. Um, and, you know, I look after our penalty corner defence. Keegs looks after our penalty corner attack. We all have set roles within it. And uh, then we go from there, really. And on match days, I have the role of uh, sort of the, the FIH. The rules are that you have to have a man manager, designated manager on the bench. So I go down on the team sheet as the manager. And basically my role on match day is to look after uh, the substitutions. So we have a sort of... In our sport, we we have rolling substitutions, so we can make anything up to sort of between sort of 50 and 60 substitutions during a game, um, and that's that's obviously quite key to uh, <laughs> ensuring that we have momentum in the game, ensuring that we have our key athletes on at certain times, and and that the tactics are able to sort of be carried out with with the squad that we have that we have on the pitch. So basically, it enables us to get two coaches on on the team bench. Yeah, I mean, 50 to 60 substitutions within a game, that's an incredible amount of, um, of, of, of thinking and working and, and sort of interacting on your part. Um, just looking back over time, I mean, some of the, some of the listeners will know, um, you know, you enjoyed a really long and illustrious playing career. Um, how does your life or how do you see the life of today's international player comparing with, with, with the life that you lived as an international player? Oh goodness! I mean, really, there isn't any comparison. Um, when I played, everyone had full-time jobs and worked. Um, we made, we even paid to play in a way. You know, we didn't pay. I remember us having to make sort of contributions to trips overseas, etc. Um, that was when we started. When I started playing, um, and the, but this, this, every sport it evolves and it changes. Now we are incredibly fortunate that that through lottery funding and UK Sport, we are able to um, have a full-time centralised program based out of Bisham Abbey. Um, the athletes, most of them, um, are able to to train on a full-time basis. As I say, they do have to sort of obviously look after their career post hockey because um, they're not going to earn a fortune like other sports while while they're playing the sport so they do have to um, some of them study some of them go to university some of them are have part-time jobs um, but all of their focus is very much around putting the sport first um, and and making themselves the best athlete that they can be whether that's that's hockey skills or or their strength and conditioning side you know making sure that they're at peak fitness the whole time yeah, I mean, it, it, it's an amazing lifestyle, really. But l l again, looking back at your own career, can you sort of give us a little bit of insight into um, some of the highs and lows that you experienced as an athlete? It's <laughs> <laughs> a long time ago. They're hard to remember now. I think, I think like this group, I was, I was fortunate. I think they're matching me now. I won an Olympic bronze medal and uh, a European gold medal. So um, I, I certainly want to spur this current group on to, to winning more medals and overtaking what, what I want them to make history. I want them to be better than, you know, I want them, them to be looked back on and be the best women's team that this country has ever produced. And I think we're in a position where they're able to do that. Um, that's me digressing from your question a little bit there. <laughs> so 
I'll, I'll tell you what my highlight was. Um, was undoubtedly winning the Olympic medal and all that comes with that. I think that was a huge highlight for me. I think I was in when we won in '92. Uh, it wasn't like London 2012. We didn't actually win that many medals as a country. So um, the profile and the sort of all the highlights, the paraphernalia that go with winning an Olympic medal were, were really well felt and, and were, you know, an incredible reward for what we'd done. Um, but I think I could never top making my debut, which I was very fortunate to make at Wembley when hockey used to play at Wembley and there were sort of 60,000, 70,000 people. I, I thought every game of hockey was going to be like this. So <laughs> that was certainly the highlight. Brilliant. And I mean, that leads to the obvious question. Are, are, are you able to tell us about a low light? And I think I can probably guess which this one was. Well, I, I think what, what most people will look at would be, um, obviously, in Atlanta, we lost a, a medal, the Olympic bronze medal. We went out on the penalty shootout. And I don't say I missed, I say mine was saved. But um, <laughs> yeah, you, you, I mean, you use that experience, though. You use it in, in other ways. You use it in your coaching career. Because... Um, with any as with anything in sport, the journey is so good because you do have those highs and those lows. So what the girls experienced sort of 18 months ago, those that were there will have held them in really good stead for what they've gone through in the next, you know, through this period, through this period, and, and it will hold them in good stead for what's coming up. You know, you don't get anything in sport um, without working incredibly hard for it. And if you take your eye off the ball at all, it, it drops off very quickly. So, mm. you, Yeah, I mean, you're, you're talking about the journey that, that both you and the players have taken. And, and in effect, you're continuing your journey within hockey because of, through your coaching career. Um, do you, in, in terms of how you view um, achievements and, and goals and things like that, do you think as a coaching staff you see things very differently to the players or is there a, is there a lot of synergy between the two viewpoints? Oh, I wouldn't say we see things very differently. Our job is is to, to sort of make sure the group is focused on what we need to achieve and how we go about it. They obviously have input into that, which is absolutely right. But at the end of the day, sort of the, the major decisions are made in collaboration with the athletes. Um, but in terms of um, how we operate, that 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 they they very much are part of the discussion process we get their ideas there's you know 32 of them and and we're fortunate they're they're highly intelligent human beings so we go to them for a lot of ideas then we discuss it as a coaching group and then we and then we put those ideas into plans but you know um a lot of plans get thrown out as well <laughs> along the way. <laughs> We're not doing anything, I wouldn't say anything, probably, well, certainly not something that I'm going to share with the rest of the world that might be, <laughs> you know, give us a disadvantage going into Rio. Yeah, I understand that. Um, I mean, I, I do remember some time ago you said to me that as an athlete you have to be incredibly selfish. Um, and just a few minutes ago you, you were talking about um, how, how much you wanted somebody to make history and to beat your records, which strikes me as a very uh, incredibly unselfish view. Um, but that's obviously to do with you moving into coaching. So if I can just go back to the point that Chris made at the very start of this conversation. Um, d how, how do you see this imbalance, the, the fact that there are so many more um, males at the very top level of um, international coaching as opposed to women or do you think it's just, that's just the way it is is that the natural order of things um i think i think you have to look at it sort of not just in our sport but in sport in general so i don't think you can just look in hockey in isolation and say there aren't very many female coaches i think you have to look at it you look at sport as an industry and it is 
it is sport is behind other industries around the world. You know, to take politics for example, there was a big change, you know, roughly about 20 years ago where where people could see so young females at 18, 19 could see that as a career. Now you look at what's going on in you know within our government and you look at the number of female representation. I think I think sport is slightly behind that and it will take time for people to infiltrate the system. But there is no doubt. Um, I see no reason why in 10, 20 years time there will not be more of a more females involved in the coaching side. But I, I do think it's really important. We, we, we can't just flood the market with females. They've got to have the right qualifications. They've got to have the right skill sets. And, you know, coaching international teams is very demanding. It's very, very time-consuming. You spend an awful lot of time away from home overseas. It's not an easy lifestyle choice. Um, and those are the decisions that any person has to make, male or female, when they, you know, when when they look at their career paths. Mm. But uh, I, I do think the the there is an imbalance at the moment. I do think um, organisations and national associations are trying to address that um, by, you know, promoting women, women's coaching. That you know, there'll, there'll be coaching courses that are being put on just for females etc etc but I don't you know I do believe that in the next sort of 10-15 years that imbalance will be addressed. Yeah well uh, it's, a, it's such an interesting area of discussion it's probably something we need to get you back in another time to talk about but now I'm going to move us on to um, the thing that's just on every single sports players and sports fans mind which is uh, a few months from now in Rio 2016. What's what's in store for Great Britain uh, you know what, what do the next few months hold um, what are the plans for Rio? Yeah, well, the athletes come back in in a, a couple of weeks' time. Um, we're back in full time, so they've had a break from the summer. So we, we obviously, as you alluded to earlier, we come back as Great Britain. So we come back and train full time here at Bisham. Um, very busy sort of period at the end of this year. We've got a test match series against the USA, which we'll use very much for training purposes. Um, the athletes will be working really hard to sort of ensure that they get a hard block of work in with with regard not just to their sort of hockey coaching but also or hockey skill sets and technical skill sets but also um, their strength and conditioning will be sort of given a major focus in the next three months. Um, at the end of November we go off to the World League 4 tournament which is basically the top, top eight sides in the world. Um, that will be an interesting time so that's the first two weeks in December we're there. Um, then we break, have a little break for Christmas, and then uh, January, February, March, February, we're going to Australia for warm weather training and a test series against them. So it's it's in international sport, it, it never stops. It's a conveyor belt that you're on, and it it moves very quickly. Um, you can't afford to stand still, otherwise, as I say, the conveyor belt overtakes you. So there's an awful lot going on. There's an awful lot of planning going on at the moment for the next sort of the next nine months. Mm. And and how do you, I, I know you're going to be very circumspect about this, but how do you rate Great Britain's chances and who are going to be the teams that will uh, stand in your way? Um, well, everyone stands in your way. Um, I mean, there'll be 12 teams that are, are very competitive when that, when we get to Rio. I mean, you know, we, we believe we have a very good chance of doing very well there. Um, that's That's right now we're in a good place. We have to grow and, and, and get better if we want to do well in, in Rio. So 
who are the teams to look out for? I think the normal suspects, Holland, Argentina, Australia, will be incredibly uh, competitive. And then you throw into the mix USA, New Zealand, China, Korea, India. They could be a bit of a surprise package, India, because um, they play a very different style of hockey and, and we haven't we haven't seen too much of them. Um, but other than that, it, it's the normal the normal suspects at the normal uh, at the normal end of a tournament. It's generally the top sides come out on top. So, and right at this moment in time, I would say that um, you know you're, you're flying up there, and you're, you're a team that everybody else would be quite uh, quite worried about as well. How will you manage the athletes' expectations? Because um, going into that event, I mean, you know, you're going to be one of the few teams to have beaten the world's number one side. Uh, you're, you've you know, you've had a great year this year. Is there? How will you stop the players from? I don't know. The weight of expectation almost becoming too much for them. Um, well, that's a, that's an interesting question because because they like you know you want your athletes to be confident, confident in their own ability and confident in what they can achieve. So you know, stringing together a set of results that we have done this summer boosts everyone. You know, and and them taking that confidence forward. Um, in their own ability. I don't think they'll get ahead of themselves. I think they're very much aware of, of what's ahead of them and how hard it's going to be. We have a lot of what I would call very senior pros who, who have been around the scene. You know, Some of them were, were back in the 2004 period where you know, they'll remind everyone they were red-hot favourites to qualify for, for Athens and they didn't qualify. And, and I think that's held us in good stead. You know, our, the, What happened at the World Cup holds us in good stead and the girls are very much focused and aware on, on what they need to do, both individually and as a team, to deliver and how, how they get the optimum both out of themselves as individuals and, and out of the team. That's brilliant. Well, thank you so much for spending the time talking to us and I uh, join you in hoping that your record is broken uh, next summer out in Rio. Thank you very much, yeah. Karen. Thanks very much. I hope so. Thank Sarah you. and I have just a, a follow-up question then listening to that conversation. It, it Obviously, you spoke about the lottery funding, which is a tremendous advantage for, for British sport in so many sports, but is there individual sponsorship for these players when you say they might have a side job or they might not? But do they yeah, get I mean, individual sponsorship? Yeah, good question. I mean, we're very fortunate. We're sponsored by Investec. Um, that's as a team. Um, and they provide an awful lot of input for the organisation and, and, and for the squad. Um, individually, a lot of them will have stick sponsors, uh, Footwear companies will sponsor them. They'll, a lot of them will do appearance work. They'll go into companies and they'll give presentations and talk about their experiences and their life. They go into business and do that. Um, and I think they find it really rewarding and, and enjoyable. Um, some of them play, you know, get paid for playing from their clubs. But they, we're not talking about, uh, you know, football salaries here. We're talking about, you know, them breaking even almost so the sport doesn't cost them anything and they might be able to, you know, pay... The, well, they, they can obviously pay their rents, etc., etc. But they're not going to come out of our sport with a with a sort of a nice pension fund and they wouldn't need to work again. All of them would go out and earn a living. And in terms of media coverage, it's obviously success breeds success and exposure, but do you find there's an upward momentum now that you've had this success in terms of general media exposure for the sport? Yes, absolutely. I mean, we've spoken about the disparity between sort of men and women coaching. I think that's the same with sport and sport on television. I mean, here in England, um, there's been a big drive on getting women's 
sport onto the the, the mainstream media much more and onto our satellite TVs. Um, and that is working. There's no doubt about that. There is much more opportunity for them than there was sort of even sort of two years ago. London 2012 in this country certainly gave sport a huge boost and we're riding on the back of that wave. There's no doubt about that. Um, there is also no doubt that if you are successful, people want to be associated with a successful brand, a successful team. Um, for us, having the sport on mainstream television on a prime time on a Sunday afternoon, us being successful, the amount of sort of new audience that we can reach is is something that we can't. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at Chumba ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. We can't generate it. So the more that we can do that, the more people we get interested in the sport is. is is incredible and I think our organisation did an incredible job every game that uh, sort of England played in at the Europeans was virtually sold out um, and that's kind of unheard for for our sport if you know just since I've been involved in the coaching in the last two years that's a huge turnaround and it's a new audience that's coming to watch our sport it's you know it's not just hockey people it's actually sport supporters, people who just love sport and are suddenly realising that this game is, wow, this is a really good sport to watch. It's, you know, it's so fast, it's so athletic and it, and, and you can get behind and support your country and I think I think our, certainly supporters in this country have really bought into that and they've really enjoyed the experience of, of being at, at the tournament. And I'm assuming, given the bedrock of hockey at uh, school and club level, that, that you've always got a nice steady stream of new talent coming along. Uh, yes and no. I mean, you've only got to see, take for instance, women's sport. Women now at school, quite rightly, I firmly believe in this, you know, that there's so many more options. They can play, you know, when I went to school, it was hockey and netball cross country. Um, <laughs> and that was more or less it, if I'm honest. Now, if you go, if you go to into a school, you know, you can do football, rugby, hockey, cricket, netball, you know, there's no end, quite rightly, of sports that you can do. And, and, and whilst I think hockey may use some, lose some talented individuals to other sports, our job is to make sure that, that we still inspire the next Alex Sance and the next Kate Richardson-Walsh. And I think that's what these girls are doing, and that's the legacy that they're leaving. And your chances, or our chances, the US against you, have, against you guys in the test 
uh, games that are coming up. What, uh, I mean, I'm, who am I supposed to be uh, cheering for here, Karen? Well, that, that's your issue. I, <laughs> I'll leave you to cheer for who you wish to cheer for. Um, I, I'll be honest, I think both the sides, are using, we use them. Yes, it's a test match series, and yes, the results are important, but they're not the most important thing. I think both sides will be using sort of their full squad, and by that, like we have 30 to 31 athletes in our training squad we'll be using all 31 athletes america will come over and they'll probably bring 20 25 athletes and they'll rotate their athletes through so there's no doubt the games will be very competitive because athletes are striving to get you know to perform well to get to to the world league four to ensure that they're getting on the plane for rio so that there'll be no lack of competitive games but i think sort of as coaching staff we definitely view them as training matches as opposed to a serious test match series and that is when and where karen um they are all around bisham abbey and they start oh you're catching me out here sort of <laughs> five matches the end towards the mid to end of october Okay, all right. Well, we'll just we'll choose our sides here and cheer you on one way or the other. Well, thank you so much indeed for coming on the program and the very best of luck all the way to Rio. That's a pleasure. Thank you very much. We're going to bounce back to my sport now. That we're, really, we've done hockey this week, Sarah. Okay, we've done it. We've done it to death already, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, if you remember, I did say back in the spring. You know when. You get past all all of those tournaments. You'd have to come back and give us the review of how it all mm. went. So, the time was now. So, thank you for that, Sarah. I knew I could rely on you. And uh, <laughs> thanks again to Karen for coming on the program. So, we're going to switch to equestrian sport. Have you been following the para dressage, then, Sarah? I have. I'm actually a huge fan of Sophie Christensen. Uh, the reason I, I went along to the um, the London uh, Paralympics and and I was absolutely blown away uh, by this 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 athlete and her, her relationship with the horse. Um, and so I was very, very pleased to see that Great Britain's para dressage team have just come back with 11 gold medals at the para-European championships, and good old Sophie picked up two of them. Uh, she was riding a, a beautiful um, mare called Athena Lindeberg, um, and she was, joined, she was joined in her success with silver medals for Natasha Baker, Sophie Wells, and Anne Dunham. And I, I just think, again, you know, it's, it's a sport that... There have been some great role models. Uh, people are beginning to realise what they can do. Um, there's the support network there, the infrastructure there, and uh, and it's paying dividends. We're, we're you know some some great athletes, some great horses, and some great competition. Well, that's thanks to British dressers, of course. They really are putting every mm. effort into the para team, which the British para team has really led the way for a while now in in para sports. And but they're getting challenged now by the Netherlands mm. and some other European countries. But they will be pleased that they came back from Deauville with what four more than they got in in Herning at the last European Championships, four more gold medals, and so that you know at least retaining the European domination for now. But uh, they're they're working hard. They've got, as you say, the infrastructure. And it's all about maintaining that uh, that kind of form at the top, especially going into the Paralympics in Rio next year. And all focus, of course, is on either the Paralympics in so many different sports now or the Olympic Games down there in Rio in just a year's time, actually. Well, it'll all be over in September next year, won't it? Yes, we'll all be in that uh, afterglow or, or despondency trough, whichever way you want to look at it. Whichever way you look at it, that's right. <laughs> and, of course, athletics is the one thing that, uh, of course, is front and centre. They get a lot of publicity as well. And, you know, when anything goes wrong in sport, they also get that exposure as well. There was a little bit of uh, 
controversy recently. I know you picked up on that story about the Indian sprinter Diti Shan, who won gold at the National Open Olympic Championships in Salt Lake, India, last weekend. Yeah, I just thought this was an interesting story, and it, it um, yeah, it, it, it's it's one it's it's one that just had me again just thinking and arguing with myself because I often sit here and argue with myself. Um, but basically, the uh, Duty Chand um, was an up and coming, you know, a, a great junior athlete. She won the hundred meters and the two hundred meters last summer in the Asian um, junior the junior Asian Games, um, and then the Indian Athletic Federation asked for her to be subjected to a gender test. Um, under the IAAF, and I'm going to have to get my pronunciation right here, hypoandrogenism. Hypo- hypoandrogenism, well done. Thank you, Good. rules. Um, what it revealed is that she had abnormally high levels of testosterone, and she was subsequently banned. Um, she then spent a year being hounded by the media. She wasn't allowed to do any uh, uh, competing. She was asked to undergo corrective measures to bring her levels of the hormone down to normal readings, which she quite rightly, I think, refused to do. Um, and eventually the ban has been overturned. Um, any action has been suspended for two years and it's now in the IAAF's court to show any evidence that they can bring in that supports these these rules. Um, I just think it's just so absolutely unfair on that athlete. And I'm, what I'm going to link it to in a sort of strange way is Paula Radcliffe. And anyone who's been following the British media recently will have seen that Paula Radcliffe um, has been um, named in the press as an athlete who had abnormally high, um, high um, levels of, of VO2 capabilities um, many years ago. And so obviously there's now talk about blood doping and things like that. And Paula Radcliffe has been one of the most um, outspoken athletes speaking against uh, doping that that you know that the GB's produced really you know she some of you will remember she uh, she waved a banner at one of the uh, one of the championships saying uh, cheats out and she she's been a very very vocal opponent to any form of drug taking and now um, she's she's being hailed as somebody who who's actually benefited um, and what it strikes me in both cases is that what on earth do we call normal? Because neither of these athletes are what we would call a normal member of the population in that they just go out and walk. They go out and they run incredibly fast times or they show incredibly high levels of endurance, which will certainly have some sort of impact upon the, the, the their lung capacity, their hormonal balances, etc., etc. And I think we just have to be so very, very careful what we term normal and how how you become a judge and jury, and also how that information is is put out there, because both Chand and Paula Radcliffe, um, they, they've been vilified in the press, and Chand actually found out about her ban through the press. It, you know, that's when she first read about it. So, I, I don't know, Chris. It just seems to me that um, athletics gets bad enough rap without the without the media then becoming judge, judge and jury without being in possession of all the facts. Oh, I totally agree with you there, Sarah. I mean, you know, so often we jump to conclusions, don't we, without mm-hmm. knowing, you know, exactly what went on. Um, you know, with something like this, we, it's not like the Solheim Cup incident, you know, where we have television proof. We have the no. pictures, we have the images, we can see exactly what happened. Something like this is, which is, you know, backstage, it's it's more, more um, covert, it's not obvious. People do jump to conclusions and they mm-hmm. don't know the facts. No, exactly. And I mean, the, the thing is, when, when we're talking about, you know, abnorm- abnormality, well, you know, a very, very tall person is abnormal compared to the to the population, but we don't stop them from playing basketball. Yeah. Uh, 
<laughs> you know, somebody with a with a very good lung capacity that's abnormal in comparison to the to your average person. That means they're going to be a good endurance athlete. It's as simple as that. And I, I you know, I, I'm, I'm ranting a little bit, but that's because I just think it's very very unfair on the two athletes in question. And I'm very very glad that Chand has now uh, managed to appeal that ban and and will be competing. Yeah, I'm I'm glad that's been turned around for sure. Um, but, you know, it, it does weigh into something that is much more sort of scientific and, you know, biological. And it's much more complex than, yeah. than what we read on the page, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think the other thing that people need to remember as well is this 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 girl, and she is only a girl, she was only 18 years old when this when this ban took place. And how she, uh, it's very, very similar to the South African cast of Semenya, uh, Semenya and, and her situation. Um, you know, she was 18 years old. And there were people questioning her gender, which, you know, put yourself in their shoes. That must have been a, so, well, devastating, really, in every single way, mentally as well as, um, well, mentally, really. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, that that time of their life when they're, mm. you know, it's a very formative time, and, you know, and it's all about confidence and developing your own self-confidence, but to have that uh, thrown in your face. Yeah. Well, as you say, no, it's a very good point, and thanks for, for bringing that to us, uh, Sarah. It really, really is important. You know, and you look at, you say, what's normal and what's not normal, and look at the disabilities, and we just talked about paradressage, and this week's athlete profile is with Rachel Chung, who uh, is a, a she, she's a dwarf. She plays para-babington. Well, she just won triple all the time three titles in the world championship you know she won singles doubles and the mixed doubles incredible i'm incredible and she trains against you know people of what we would call normal height mm -hmm. you know again we come back to this normal word don't we i mean yeah yeah for me, it's a word that should be banned. <laughs> yes, because you and I are both normal, aren't we? But we, you know, uh, no, we don't I, need I, to. We don't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm anything but normal. <laughs> All right. Well, we're coming to our coaching tip uh, finally now as we get towards the end of our show. We always conclude with a tip from a coach around the world. This week, it's uh, Melanie Marshall, the swimming coach in England. And this uh, tip, of course, is brought to you in partnership with the Female Coaching Network. Mel, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. Well, first of all, let's start with a little bit of your background and how you got into coaching and what you do now. So I got into coaching um, following retiring from international sport as an athlete. Um, I went to two Olympics um, and I basically felt like I'd learned a lot as an athlete and if I was able to use that and then impart that on athletes and help them with their sporting journeys, I thought that would be quite valuable. And now I currently coach um, the world record holder for the 100-metre breaststroke, and that's Adam Peaty. All right, so obviously full-time job for you now, coaching in swimming. And you've obviously gathered, gathered a lot of experience from how you were coached when you were an athlete and taken that to and applied it to, to your style, I guess, your method now. And uh, I mean, that obviously is key to being a successful coach, I would think. Yeah, I think so. I think I was able to. Um, I've obviously been around a lot of great coaches, and I've seen some great things they've done, and I've been lucky enough to learn from the mistakes that they've made as well. And and so that's really helped me, I think, um, develop my craft and come up with my own philosophies and my own kind of style. Um, and I've been coaching now for seven years, and I, and I feel like now that I'm starting to get the hang of it. <laughs> so, so that's quite that's quite good. All right, well... One of those tips you're going to share with us today. So uh, explain what that is, Mel. 
Um, I think in terms of being in coaching for seven years and being an athlete, one thing that we perhaps don't do well enough is listen and work on our listening skills. I think a lot of the time, someone told me once you've got two ears and one mouth for a reason. I think sometimes we can really find answers much quicker if we listen first rather than get our own points across. And that for me is um, is key. Um, sometimes the quiet coach is the best coach, I think. And um, and I think that's one of the key things for me that's been a, definitely something that I've used in my coaching, particularly over the last kind of couple of years. Now, tell us a little bit about why you've arrived at, at that and, and what you learn from the athletes, why it is important not just to learn about, obviously, their, what, they're, what they're being coached on, but them as a person. I think for me, it's what we must remember as coaches, it isn't about us. And so, therefore, it's not about projecting our views and it's not about projecting what we think, but more understanding what they think and how we help them with that. And I think that makes the difference between good coaches and great coaches. Those that can understand that the medal will never go around our neck, but it's for us to allow them to completely have ownership of their own performance, responsibility of their own dreams, and then make that move forward by making their own decisions. And us being a support network in that rather than us telling them what to do. Now, do you have a, a style of, 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 you know, how you when you're spending time with your uh, with your athletes, Mel, you know, to give them time and to empower them in a way, you know, to, to use their voice and to respond to you so that you do get back what, from them what you need? Yeah, I mean, I think it's not like continuous, like, you know, let's listen all the time. But I think um, I think it's very much about it's inside-out coaching. And so I think a lot of the time as coaches, we outside in. You know, how can we get them to do this rather than thinking about, well, hang on a minute, how do we get the best out of them and then, you know, take it on themselves? So I think it's very much inside-out coaching. And, you know, obviously over time I've been able to develop certain ways of doing things. Um, but it's thinking outside the box. Uh, it's thinking about how you um, can empower them from the inside rather than, you know, in terms of getting them to get to a result because you've, you know, been autocratic with them or, you know, in the sense of you will do this. It's much more powerful when they think, wow, I want to do this because of. That's so much more powerful. And presumably this is something that you've developed yourself as, as a, you know, it's, a, it's all about personalities, isn't it, with that relationship? Yeah, I think so. But also it's, you know, in terms of reading around things in terms of some psychology and seeing other coaches do things and just, you know, working with people. And I just think it's about developing relationships with people and then a relationship whereby you can take them to the edge, but they've got the wings to fly off and enjoy the view um, and are able to cope with what's in front of them. And I think that for me is, is, I think, good coaching. And to give them the confidence to speak up. Exactly, to give them the confidence not just to speak up but to have faith in their own abilities and have faith in their own um, capabilities and um, be able to deliver in the, the world's toughest arena which is the sporting arena. Absolutely. Well, clearly you're enjo- enjoying what you're doing with them, um, Mel. I mean, how many, how many athletes would you have, coach- you have to coach every week? Well, I'm in charge of 350. <laughs> Um, and so, but my main group's 32, and then I'm, I have a smaller league group of eight within that group, and so um, it's fairly busy. There's a lot of listening. Obviously, I don't get to hold 350, but I get to the ones that, in, in the sense of, uh, are a, lot, a bit older, and you can have that kind of interaction with. Yeah, interesting. Well, um, I have to ask you: Are you one of these coaches that gets in the pool with them, or do you think it's more important that you're not in the pool when you're coaching? 
I absolutely never get in with them. <laughs> the, um, you know, my days of swimming are very much gone and my days of beating the athletes in terms of swimming are very much gone. So I feel like um, uh, I would actually be a laughing stock if I got in now. Um, yeah, so no, 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 I don't get in with them, no. <laughs> From the sidelines, okay. Well, clearly it's working for you, but I want to thank you for coming on the programme this week and sharing that advice, Mel. No, thank you very much. And yeah, I guess to the women coaches in there in the sense of um it's it's not about men it's not about women it's just about how individuals get the best out of the athletes and i think that in terms of if we can stick to that and you know we'll be a force to be reckoned with terrific thank you so much mel no problem thanks for having me well our thanks to mel for our tip and to vicky Hyten, who brings us these wonderful coaches with some great tips every week and you can check out everything that happens at the female coaching network by going to their website we'll put a link in our show notes. Well, I guess we better wrap this, wrap this up, uh, Sarah. But before we do, we always point towards what's coming up next. I know I've just got one thing on the agenda this week. That is um, the Furusia FEI Nations Cup show jumping competition, which is taking place in Barcelona, Spain. Extreme sailing. It's um, the seventh leg uh, of the eight race series. Uh, it's taking place in Turkey from the 1st to the 4th of October. So again, that's something that people can tune into next week. And on the hockey calendar for Sarah Juggins, where, where can we expect to see her play? <laughs> um, I'm playing in Redbridge on the 18th of October. But more importantly, actually, Chris, and this is one I'm going to chuck in there, um, I'm actually running a marathon on the 30th of October. Oh, excellent. Mm. Good. It well will, it done. Will, well, done. well it's, I, I'm just going to throw this one out there as a little bit of inspiration for anyone who's carrying an injury because I've, I've actually uh, I've got arthritis in my left foot, which made me think I would never be able to run a marathon. And I've decided that I can. So I'll let you know. <laughs> it's, it's all in the mind, you see. It's, it's all, all in the mind. the mind and not in the foot at all. Not <laughs> near the foot. <laughs> Well, the very, very best of luck with that, with Thank Sarah. It, I hope you'll come back on and, on the show and tell us how that all works. So what's the date of it again? It's the 30th of October, 30th. and I'll, I'll hobble back and tell you all about would, it. Would you? <laughs> yes. You, well, by, by the time you come back, I'm sure you'll be fully recovered. So how, <laughs> just remind everybody how far that is. Uh, that's 26 miles, um, or 42K, and I'm actually running it on the uh, the coastal path around Norfolk, which means it's going to be oh, a mixture of sand and shingle, grass and road. Even, yeah, even a tougher challenge. Well, good yeah. for you. Excellent. All right, well, pictures, please. We'll post them on our <laughs> Facebook page, and we'll hear all about it when you come back on the show. Perfect. All right, wonderful. Well, again, thanks to our guests this week, Jordan Wiley, Karen Brown, and Melanie Marshall. Thanks to my co-host, Sarah Juggins. Lovely to have you back, Sarah. It's been an absolute pleasure. All right. Well, we'll see you again soon, I hope. In the meanwhile, don't forget to check out all the other shows here on the network, including our athlete profile, as I mentioned, with Rachel Chung. Next week, we're going to New Zealand and to my friend Zoe George down there with all things Kiwi. Until the next time, thank you all for listening wherever you are in the world. Goodbye for now. new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.